This is episode 157 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Secrets of Hematopoiesis with Dr. Camila Forsberg. Hey everybody, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Love the Stem Cell Podcast and want to share it with your peers. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. Today, we have Dr. Camila Forsberg from the University of California, Santa Cruz, on the podcast to talk about her research on hematopoietic stem cell fate decisions. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first... We'd like to remind our listeners about Hematopoiesis News, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. Hematopoiesis News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in hematopoietic stem cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Thursday. Save time and keep current with Hematopoiesis News. Subscribe for free at hematopoiesisnews.com. So we'll jump right into it. First paper I'm going to talk about is something that's kind of taken the cardiac regenerative medicine community by storm uh, recently. The title of the paper is An Acute Immune Response Underlies the Benefit of Cardiac Stem Cell Therapy. This is coming from the lab of Jeff Molkenton over in uh, Cincinnati Children's. He's a pretty big name when it comes to all things cardiac regenerative medicine and another uh, co Corresponding author is Sakti Satyapan, also from uh, Cincinnati Children's. So a little bit of background on this whole field. You know, over the last couple of decades, and I'm sure you're aware of this as well, Daylon, there's been this thought that injecting stem cells, injecting bone marrow cells, different types of stem cells can regenerate the heart. So you can basically inject these cells into the myocardium, and there's gonna be some sort of process that actually restores the muscular layer of the heart after injecting these so-called like cardiac stem cells and like bone marrow transplanted cells. And there's been some improvement, like, you know, when it comes to the mouse models, there's like a really residual gradual improvement in cardiac function after improving these cells. But it was super controversial as to whether these injected populations were actually restoring or generating new cardiomyocytes. And, you know, there's been, you know, quite a quite a firestorm over the last few years in terms of, you know, certain studies were not able to be replicated. There was some scientific misconduct coming out of some labs that were focused in this area. And so people really just wanted to get to the bottom of this to see okay, is there any true improvement from injecting various forms of so-called cardiac stem cells? And two, is, is there actually cardiomyocyte generation that's occurring? Like what's actually the mechanism behind this so-called improvement in cardiac function after in introducing these cell populations? And so that's kind of the, the basis of this paper. And it's a pretty simple approach. You know, they, they either injected... Uh, various types of adult stem cells, or in fact, they even looked at freeze-thaw killed cells or even just cellular debris. They injected these various particles and cells into the heart 
after, you know, inducing a myocardial infarction or inducing a ischemia reperfusion injury uh, into, into mice. And they're able to show, they're actually able to confirm that there is a small improvement in cardiac function after introducing whatever you want, even if it's dead cells or even if it's cellular debris, there is like a very slight improvement in cardiac function. So if dead stuff, if debris is still causing that effect, then what's going on? And so they, they took a deeper dive into it and they actually saw that it was the uh, recruitment of macrophages, the CCR2 plus and, you know, CX3, CR1 positive macrophages. They're actually being recruited to the site of injection, to the, to the myocardium. And it's that these macrophages are actually helping to improve the cardiac scar by optimizing the extracellular matrix content and actually enhancing the mechanical properties of the injured area. But importantly, there's not new cardiomyocyte generation. So it's because of the immune system that you're actually seeing this slight improvement in cardiac function in, in these mice. And, you know, this is, like I said, this is an important study because it kind of puts a nail in the coffin to the idea that, you know, these stem cell therapies in the heart are actually generating new cardiomyocytes. And it actually shows that the immune system is pretty powerful. And, and, and that's the reason why you might be seeing some modest effect. And of course, this is important because a lot of this work has been progressing towards clinical trials, which is, you know, a little bit worrisome because it's founded. Some of these trials may be founded on some results that, you know, haven't been perfectly reproduced. So it's an important study that shows the power of the immune system and that you don't necessarily get, you know, new generation of cardiomyocytes, but that the immune system and the immune cells may be optimizing that cardiac scar. So what do you think, Dalon? I think you said it there. It's the nail in the coffin. This story's been a long time coming, you know. This is, is an epic saga at this point. Years of work, 31 uh, retractions from the Brigham and Harvard based on Pierre Anaverse's work. Uh, which a lot of people bought into. And like you said, started a lot of these trials. And then there was some skepticism. There was a lot of papers, not a lot, but a, a significant amount of papers that were just showing, well, not to mention the ones that followed up, Anniversary's work showing benefit of these trials in actual patients, which is really scary, considering we don't know how this works. I think this raises the question now to the field is, should we continue with these trials or is the, the risk or the benefit um, you know, imbalance there and we should maybe suspend trials and move on to something else. Yeah, the effect is, you know, like you said, it's pretty modest. It's a slight improvement in cardiac function. And, you know, perhaps part of that is because you're not actually making new cardiomyocytes, right? You know, as somebody who does IPS-derived cardiomyocyte work, which is obviously like totally different from, from all this and the endogenous cardiac stem cell, you know, I'm, I'm kind of finally happy. I'm happy to finally see this paper come out because, like I said, it's a nail in the coffin of, you know, this particular uh, field. And a lot of people say that, you know, they've come up to me like, oh, you work on cardiac stem cells. You work on like those endogenous adult cardiac hmm. stem cells. I'm like, no, I'm an IPS cardiomyocyte hmm. guy. It's totally different, you know. So it's it's nice to see that distinction between the two fields and you know hopefully everybody gets to to move on from this yeah let's put it to rest finally once and for all 
So uh, moving from one degenerative condition to another, you know, heart disease kills the most, right? But there's a major proliferation in these diseases of advancing age, a huge one, Alzheimer's disease, right? So it's estimated by 2050, about 80 million people are going to be suffering from this disease worldwide. So of course, it's really important to understand the mechanisms underlying the disease, uh, both for diagnostics, you know, early diagnostics could be critical to uh, maintaining quality of life and slowing progression of the disease, but also treatment. You know, we want to find some drugs or some therapeutics that can address this disease. Uh, so this is kind of a two for one uh, uh, back to back stories that were in science translational medicine between Ben Gurion University where we have a physiologist, Alone Friedman, looking at kind of the physiology of this phenomenon. And then we have Daniela Kaufer, who uh, is a neuroscientist at UC Berkeley. I'm going to start with uh, Alone Friedman's end of this. Both of the authors are senior on both of these stories. It's a true shared effort. The first part was a physiology um, where it's been noted that uh, epileptic activity, so non-convulsive epileptic activity, is, is often present but undiagnosed in patients with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so they looked into this to see if maybe there was a, a mechanistic basis or involvement of these, um, this activity with, the, with uh, the disease progression, looked at EEG uh, and found that there was this transient slowing of the cortical network that they call paroxysmal uh, slow wave events. Okay. We're calling those slow wave events. And the amount of slow wave events per minute in these patients correlates with the level of cognitive impairment, right? So it looks like it's a diagnostic measure, but these slow wave events were also found in patients with epilepsy and they were localized to the regions anatomically localized to regions displaying dysfunction in the blood brain barrier, right? So this is a blood brain barrier story. It's an endothelial story, the blood brain barrier that maintains the, uh, you know, separation between the brain space and circulation. Uh, so you found that there were these slow wave events in these uh, patients and also in three rodent models that have this blood brain barrier pathology. So old mice, also mice with uh, Alzheimer's disease, a familial Alzheimer's disease genetic model, also mice with this induced epilepsy. They all share this BBB pathology. All right. So the hypothesis there was that maybe blood-brain barrier dysfunction and this, the resultant uh, slow wave events and increase in these slow wave events may be connected to the disease pathology. Uh, and they make that point. They show that there's a causal role there. They actually introduce serum albumin versus you know, a control, which is just cerebrospinal fluid, into the space and show that they can recapitulate those slow wave events. So this part of the story identifies slow wave events as a, as a visible manifestation, something you can see in an EEG scan that is uh, linked um, to the progression and the cognitive deficit in these AD patients. And also it suggests that there's a blood brain barrier pathology underlying this event, right? So move on to the mechanistic element. Danielle and her group pick it up, although of course this is an effort between both groups that was shared. But the mechanistic part of the story uh, goes deeper into what are the molecules that are mediating this effect. Um, so what they first show is that when you get this uh, blood-brain barrier dysfunction, you get a, a hyperactivation of transforming growth factor beta signaling in astrocytes. 
okay? And that this alone, it's necessary and sufficient to cause a neural dysfunction and age-related pathology in rodents and rats, right? Um, and then they show that if they introduce this same serum albumin into a young rodent brain, and that's like recapitulating the, that blood-brain barrier leakiness, um, that it induced this same hyperactivation of TGF-beta signaling in the astrocytes, and it resulted in an age-brained phenotype with aberrant EEG or electrocortographic activity, also vulnerability to these seizures, and cognitive impairment, which you see in Alzheimer's disease, right? So the, the, the genetics then they go to and show that if you conditionally knock down that the TGF-beta receptors exclusively in astrocytes, or if you pharmacologically inhibit TGF-beta signaling, you could reverse these outcomes in aged mice, right? So you induce it, the leakiness in young mice, you get the phenotype, but you can reverse it in aged mice where it's already manifest, all right? Um, and lastly, and finally, and this is the real clinical uh, endpoint here, is that they found the same signaling pathways are activated in aged human subjects that have blood-brain barrier dysfunction. So they've drawn a line between this blood-brain barrier dysfunction, these non-convulsive seizures, they've made a mechanistic link to TGF-beta signaling and shown that it's reversible, thereby identifying a potential therapeutic target uh, in slowing the progression of Alzheimer's disease, even reversing some of the cognitive uh, impairment or other symptoms. So it's a nice two for one out of science translational emphasis on the translational medicine here because they're using animal models, but they're really looking at clinical endpoints uh, in a disease with a major unmet need. Yeah, it's a pretty neat study. And uh, I think these days there's a lot of work that's being done looking at the blood-brain barrier in various forms of, you know, neurodegenerative diseases, you know, that sort of thing, Alzheimer's and all that. In fact, my current lab, I'm in the lab of um, Dr. Clive Svensson here at the Cedars-Sinai Medical Institute. Uh, you know, we've actually looked at blood-brain barrier on a chip, right? So one thought is you can maybe distill some of these mechanisms of how the blood-brain barrier functions just by looking at a, an organ chip. So you can basically moderate, model that interface between the endothelial cells and the astrocytes all in like a fully integrated system. So maybe we can use some of these chips for some of these applications as well. The other thing though is like, you know, it's cool to see, like you mentioned, you know, this, this paper has a whole like translational element to it. It's in science translational medicine, right? So the idea of TGF beta inhibition, right, as a as a target signaling pathway, don't you think that's kind of tricky? Because TGF-beta is just so important for, like, as you know, everything, right? Yes. I mean, look, all these stories, they all end with some pharma that uh, ultimately is going to hit so many compartments that it's tough to think about. But I will say that, you know, the whole idea of the blood-brain barrier is kind of predicated on its barrier function, right? So... You can imagine, one, that if you deliver some kind of, you know, uh, a larger substance like an antibody that will be precluded from entering or traversing the blood-brain barrier, maybe it will, it will only act at the brain barrier as well as every other compartment in regular circulation, fine, but at least it'll be excluded from the, from the brain. But yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. You're throwing stones. I know it's not a hard stone that you're throwing, but it's a good stone in order to highlight the fact that a lot of these therapies are you know, a little bit premature in terms of translation. 
there may be drugs out there that would work, but we got to worry about them blowing up the rest of the body. But I think we're at a point of Rune where uh, the sophistication of some of the biologics and other therapeutics where we're targeting specific cells, specific compartments, um, it's, it's early days in terms of delivery. But I think understanding the mechanism, how this works, is going to be instrumental in addressing um, this as well as other diseases. I like to throw stones, Daylon. Sorry <laughs> about that, man. I'm just a skeptical scientist. Isn't that kind of the nature of science? You got to be skeptical. Yeah, well, you... there's there's David and Goliath, and you're certainly David, my man. <laughs> Are you calling me short? <laughs> Anyways. Oh, man. So translational studies. This is what it's all about, right? The stem cell field, whether it's using the blood-brain barrier to, to look at translational applications for Alzheimer's and Next thing I'm going to move to is the tendon. So something that actually doesn't get too much, you know, love, too much attention, because when it comes to regenerative medicine for the tendon, it's thought that, you know, the tendon isn't really that regenerative. And look, I'm a, you know, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm a big basketball fan, right? And when it comes to like severe basketball injuries, Tendon injuries like are absolutely terrifying. There's ACL injuries, there's Achilles tendon injuries, and there've been a couple of pretty high-profile tendon injuries in you know in the NBA over the last couple of years, like Kevin Durant uh, over in you know Brooklyn and your neck of the woods, hmm. and also Kobe Bryant. You know I'm a Laker fan. I'm living down here in LA. You know, it devastated me to see Kobe go down with that you know Achilles tendon injury, man. And he never. And the thing was. He never really came back from it. You know, he's he never fully recovered from it. And it's it's sad to see a player of his caliber, you know, kind of be struck down like that. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of improving tendon regeneration. Right. And that's kind of what these folks uh, were doing. This is the lab of Chen Ming Fan and first author is Tyler Harvey. There's actually only three authors on this paper and the, the middle author is Sarah Filmenko. Uh, the title of the paper is a TPP3 PDGFR alpha positive stem tendon stem cell population contributes to regeneration and reveals a shared role for PDGF signaling in regeneration and fibrosis. So they basically were able to identify a potential tendon stem cell population that who knows might be harnessed one day to improve like Achilles tendon injuries down the road. And so the general idea is that, you know, like I said, the tendon doesn't regenerate that well. And that's in part because there's a lot of fibrosis that happens and perhaps there's a limited stem cell pool. But apparently, you know, and they were able to use a mouse model for this as well as like a bunch of single cell analysis. They're able to identify this, you know, TPP3 positive, PGF alpha positive tendon stem cell population. The tricky part here, though, is this uh, dual positive tendon stem cell population is kind of competing with another population of cells that's also kind of found within that tendon niche. It's They called it these TPP3 negative PDGFR alpha positive fibroadipogenic progenitors, which are kind of secreting some of these extracellular matrix proteins and perhaps contributing to the scar, right? So the thought is you have these two, stem, two populations of cells that are Come, you know, combating with one another that are fighting with each other to either induce a scar formation in the case of this, you know, second population, or perhaps 
induce the generation of new tendon cells, which is what's happening with these TPP3 positive, PGF alpha positive cells. So if we want to harness this down the road, we got to figure out a way to either selectively isolate the stem cell population from this niche or perhaps turn off those fibroblasts so that they don't actually secrete all those ECM proteins and cause the fibrosis. And of course, you know, a lot of this, this is all done in mouse. So we want to also make sure that the same tendon stem cell population is going to be found in humans too, right? But I have a thought that, you know, these things are relatively well conserved. And so we, we might find it there as well. So it's important because, you know, as I mentioned, tendon injuries are devastating. They are absolutely devastating. And I think any hope that you can bring to helping to regenerate lost tendons and damaged tendons is 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 welcome for not only for basketball fans like myself and basketball players, but, you know, people around the world who have various forms of tendon injuries. That's the truth. It's a big unmet need. It's not life or death. Let's be honest. But um, it's unmet need. And then talk about the scope. You know, we ta- always think about regenerative medicine, I think, in terms of these, you know, the, the optics of the, 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 the dead and dying as much, not the dead, <laughs> the dying. <laughs> the optics on the dying for treatment, it makes more sense, right? Or the, the, with the degenerative disease, right? Where there's really, but there's the Kobe's out there too. And I've had some tendon injuries and talk about changing people's lives. If you could with a magic wand, eliminate or fix all tendon injuries. I think you would be improving the quality of life globally. But what I really like about this story, Arun, is that it's one of those stories where you read it and you're like, oh yeah, of course. Because at at the root of all stories in biology is the, the natural concept of balance, right? Nature always keeps things in equilibrium and balance. And this is a great lesson here is that you look, there's, there's a tale of two cells, right? There's the cells that are patching it up with the ECM that we see as a kind of negative fibrotic. And then there's the, the, the regenerative cell population. And there's a role for both of those um, in, you know, the normal life. There's the acute phase and then there's the long-term and nature's figured out a way to balance that that makes sense. And like all uh, stories at the end is like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Now let's shift that equilibrium so that we can kind of override the natural law and make more regeneration and less fibrosis towards a positive clinical end. So I I like this story in that it gives us a lesson on the beauty of nature and then also empowers us to totally blast that equilibrium out of the water. Yeah, easier said than done. You know, like you said, it's all about this balance and kind of if we're able to really harness this for regenerative medicine purposes, we got to shift that balance towards activating those stem cells and, you know, seeing ultimately we got to see if these things are found in humans as well. So a lot of work that needs to be done, but, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I got a story that's going here and this is also about activation. It's about exhaustion. It's about, uh, overriding a natural system and employing it toward clinical ends. This is a story about CAR T cells and I'm telling it because it's a story about the blood, which I love, but it's also a story that's very hot in the field in the treatment of cancer. And it's coming out of Stanford where our guest today was trained in the lab of Irv Weissman, who's also very active in the field of CAR T. So let's get to it. This is a story about CAR T exhaustion. All right. So we all know that, uh, 
at this point, if you listen to this show or read the news, that CAR-T uh, is a technology, a chimeric antigen receptor expressing T cells. All right. And these cells can be leveraged to, uh, to induce an impressive response rate uh, in B cell malignancies. People are on death's door. They respond. It's a cure. Um, but it's not a cure for all. Uh, less than 50% of the patients have long-term disease control. Uh, and also, when we talk about applying this CAR-T technology towards other cancers, this is mostly in B-cell malignancies, other bloodborne hematological malignancies. When we talk about leveraging it for solid tumor treatment, which would really revolutionize cancer treatment wholesale, uh, it's not really, we don't get a sustained response with the existing CAR-T cells. Why? Well... T-cell exhaustion, that's it. It's been increasingly uh, incriminated as a cause of the failure or the limited efficacy of these therapies, at least. Um, and the author, authors here, led by Crystal McCall, who, uh, like I said, is at Stanford, um, they were trying to, to understand what is the molecular basis of that T-cell exhaustion. What they did is they used a model of healthy T-cell exhaustion. So they got healthy T-cells, they induced this exhaustion by expressing this tonically signaling chimeric antigen receptor. Um, and they found that these exhausted T-cells showed uh, widespread epigenomic dysregulation of AP1 transcription factor binding motifs and increased expression of IRF transcription factors, okay? So from this, they hypothesized that there was an imbalance between the AP1 and IRF complexes. Um, and in order to, to test this, they induced overexpression of C-June. All right, C-June, it's an AP1 tra uh, family transcription factor uh, that will shift this balance, restore a more uh, active proliferative balance in these cells. At least that's the hypothesis because C-June has been associated with uh, productive T-cell activation. And of course, that's what happened. They showed that if they could engineer the CAR T cells to overexpress C-June, they had enhanced expansion potential. They had increased functional capacity, diminished terminal differentiation, and improved anti-tumor potency in five different mouse tumor models in vivo. These are uh, patient-derived xenograft models, so human cancer in mice. They showed that it was effective on leukemia, right? but also an osteosarcoma, a solid tumor. So this is first indications that we can get these revitalized CAR T cells to attack a uh, solid tumor uh, with efficacy. And it could be a boon to the field generally by improving the percentage of patients that are going to be responsive and have these lasting CAR T cells circulating in there, um, being ever vigilant to the recurrence of these tumor cells. The one thing I will say, Arun, that gives me a little bit of pause is the first time I ever heard of C-June is when I was working in a cancer lab in mm -hmm. college in yep. the summer. And we were staining for C-June because C-June was related to cancer and proliferation. So I wonder about overexpressing C-June in uh, the context where there's already a bunch of cancer floating around. Arun, what do you think? Yeah, I actually was thinking about the exact same thing. C-June is, you know, it's something associated with cancer, right? So while this is awesome and, you know, CAR-T exhaustion is a definitely a big problem, you got to you gotta take it carefully, right? Because C-June can do a lot of different things. I will say, though, you know, the solid tumor effect that 
was I thought that was really cool. Uh, and we know that CAR T is super effective when it comes to treating different types of leukemias and that sort of thing. But I think the next generation of CAR T and like a ton of different people are trying to work on this is to target solid tumors, right? There's so many different types of cancers out there, like, you know, pancreatic cancer comes to mind that are just so absolutely devastating, you know, in terms of their mortality. But if you can really figure out a way to boost up these CAR T cells and prevent their exhaustion and get them to target solid tumors, then I think really the sky's the limit. Oh, yeah. I mean, people talk to me, they say, hey, well, I've said this before on the show, you know, what have we done for cancer since the 70s when the war on cancer has been declared? Well, I'll tell you what we've done. We've cured it. We've cured a lot of it. And I think uh, this, the CAR T is going to be the next wave. And it's never going to be an absolute cure. I mean, we're all waiting for the other shoe to drop here with some of these patients that are an absolute cure going to walk back into the clinic right now. I mean, at some point with fully disseminated cancer about to die. Yeah, sure. It's going to happen with a few, but those patients got a lot more years. They should be dead already. And there's a lot more patients that are going to have a full life because of this treatment. So I'm all about it. And like you, Arun, I'm really excited about what's to come. Just talking briefly about hematopoietic cell engineering. I got to talk to you with a message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies has been in the field of hematopoietic stem and progenitor research for over 20 years. It was founded on this concept. And during that time, they've learned a thing or two. Visit stemcell.com slash hemahub for educational resources to help you further your research on hematopoiesis and hematological malignancies. You can find that at stemcell.com slash hemahub. Now on to our interview with Camila Forsberg. All right, guys, we have a special treat for you today on the episode is Camila Forsberg. She's professor of biomolecular engineering and co-director of the Institute for the Biology of Stem Cells at University of California, Santa Cruz. Dr. Camila Forsberg's lab seeks to understand the molecular determinants of hematopoietic stem cell fate decisions to ultimately prevent and treat both genetic and acquired disorders of the hematopoietic system. They use in vivo and in vitro experimental approaches, focusing on specific molecules and analyzing global changes in these cells. Dr. Forsborg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you. Why don't you start by uh, giving us an overview of your research? Yeah, so like you said, we study hematopoietic stem cells. We use mouse models uh, of hematopoiesis to understand how stem cells give rise to all the different types of blood and immune cells. Uh, when I first started my lab 12 years ago, we really worked mostly on adult hematopoiesis, trying to understand basically steady state uh, differentiation. Now we have expanded into both developmental hematopoiesis and into aging hematopoiesis and really trying to understand how hematopoietic stem cells function uh, over ontogeny uh, throughout life uh, to sustain blood stem blood cell development. Yeah, I have a, a deep interest in hematopoiesis as well as Arun will tell you. Uh, but, you know, it's not just developmental and adult hematopoiesis out there, although it's within adult hematopoiesis I'm about to talk about. There's a lot of hematopoiesis out there. You know, we 
we just finished in the roundup talking about this uh, fresh nature story from Crystal McCall Lab, where CAR T cells are revved up with C. June. Uh, it's safe to say we have a lot of hematopoietic stories in the roundup. Um, you and I both have a bias there, but why do you think there's so many high-profile stories in basic clinical and translational journals that have a hematological component? I don't know. Um, I am biased, but I do think that the hematopoietic system is just absolutely intriguing because it affects all other systems in our bodies pretty much, right? Um, you know, the immune cells are essential for all other organs, for our whole well-being and for cancers developing in lots of different organs. Red blood cells that deliver oxygen everywhere. Platelets are also kind of an all-body system. It's a it's a liquid organ that affects everything um, in our body. So you could argue, if you were in hematology, that hematopoiesis is really is is critical for the function of all other cells. Hmm. In a way, I agree with that. I agree with that 100. I mean, but again, it's my bias. Arun, why don't you come in and tell us whether or not you believe hematopoiesis is everything as we believe? I mean, I'm a heart guy, so I mean, <laughs> I have a bit of a bias towards the heart, but, you know, I can play along, sure. I'm a fan of hematopoiesis as well, you know, nothing wrong with it. But plenty of applications for hematopoiesis, for sure. And your lab recently published a, a paper in Stem Cell Reports about a pretty unique application, and uh, you focused on how a pretty famous drug, Viagra rapidly enhances, you know, HSC mobilization when it's used in combination with plorexifor, which is another drug that's known to metabolize HSCs. So it's a it's a study that you focus in mice, um, but it's certainly an exciting new application of Viagra. And of course, it's got a bunch of big time applications for HSC transplantation, which requires large scale expansion and mobilization of HSCs. So could you talk a little bit more about this work and in particular, how were you able to identify Viagra and in terms of the combination of Viagra and Plorexifor that was able to have this beneficial side effect? Well, actually, the, that story is grounded in uh, basic science that we've been doing for years and years in a roundabout way, I should say, because it start, started with our discovery of the protein Robo4 or Roundabout4. Um, being expressed on hematopoietic stem cells uh, very selectively. And that's, that was just basic microarray analysis that I did as a postdoc in Eric Weissman's lab. That story eventually took us to uh, acknowledge that Robo4 on the vasculature affects hematopoietic stem cell location. And it does so in part by altering vascular permeability. So then, of course, we work in the mouse with genetic knockouts and such, uh, not readily translatable to humans in terms of genetics. But what drugs can we use that alter vascular permeability and function? One of them is Viagra. We tried it immediately, saw that it does have an effect together with another drug, the, the CXCR4 inhibitor, AMD3100. Um, and, you know, so... It's based on, on years of work studying the basic mechanisms. Um, and then, of course, you know, Viagra is, is, is a well-tolerated drug. <laughs> and uh, we thought, why not try it? You could say that. <laughs> yes, well-tolerated. 
Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, notwithstanding Viagra and this reapplication, it's interesting actually to see that, that that was more rationale driven. You know, a lot of times you'll see like, oh, someone, you know, they were having a, a big weekend and then they went in for a hematopoietic stem cell transplant and it worked out really well. Like, and we figured, hey, maybe it's the Viagra. <laughs> but um, it's nice to see that oftentimes, you know, it's, it's grounded in logic. Uh, but, you know, this isn't the first... Uh, story talking about uh, a small molecule, pharmacological, biologic, whatever it is that can uh, help to mobilize the hematopoietic system or to can help with ex vivo expansion of hematopoietic stem cells. I know there's been a lot of these compounds that have been talked about just because, you know, hematopoietic cell transplant has been in play for decades and there's been a lot of opportunity to test these things. But it seems like we haven't really settled on, on a silver bullet there. Do you know what the clinical status of some of these candidates are? Where where are we and how far have we come in breaking through the obstacles to therapeutic application of hematopoietic cells, either adult or developmentally derived? I would say that we have come very, very far. And I think that clinical research should be slow. We forget that. We live a long time and we have to be careful when we start treating people with these types of drugs. So I think um, it's fascinating how fast we have come. I'm amazed over how fast things really are. Only a couple of decades ago, we didn't use uh, mobilization of stem cells as the primary way to collect stem cells or HSCs. It was a bone marrow extraction and now it's overwhelmingly mobilization. So I think that's a that's really a, a big shift in how we are doing transplants these days, and that's been um, afforded by by basic research. Not exactly clear on where the status is of um, small molecule inhibitors, and there's been many that does work in mouse models or that do work in mouse models. Sorry, but. Um, the rationale, that, or in part by using Viagra, was to use something that is already clinically approved and well tolerated, and <laughs> hmm. um, so that you can speed it up. I mean, it can be, you know, tried immediately in people if if clinicians so desire. So, kind of on that exact topic, there's a huge push these days towards repurposing FDA-approved drugs towards new applications. And like you mentioned, you know, with the Viagra study, there's, you know, that was a, an example of perhaps repurposing. And even in the cardiovascular and cancer spaces as well, there's a big push towards repurposing of various types of small molecule compounds. And it makes a lot of sense to me, and you, you touched on it. It takes a long time to get FDA approval for these drugs. And if you've already shown that a drug is safe and effective through a, a long clinical trial, it should be easier to get a second approval. So is your lab doing any other work on drug repurposing? And do you think it should be a, a bigger point of emphasis, this idea of repurposing in the drug discovery space? I think it's an excellent way of speeding up um, clinical discoveries. I can't say that it should be a bigger push because I don't actually know exactly how big that push is today. I am pretty sure that there's a fair number of avenues that where people are trying this. And I think that the basic biology where we are understanding 
the molecular signaling pathways in different tissues and between tissues, where they are similar and where they are the same, is exactly the way to go to try and understand which drugs to repurpose under what circumstances. Yeah, on, on the other end of the spectrum, you have these newer, more experimental kind of cell engineering based therapies. Like we talked about the CAR T and the C June there. And there's also, you know, CRISPR is being used to hack sickle cell. I know that's in play. And there's a lot of other stuff going on with hematological malignancy in, in CRISPR, CAR T, other spaces as well. What's your take? there on the cost cost benefit do you think that these uh you talked about it how like now we mobilize mostly whereas we used to do bone marrow extraction do you think that these like let's say car t for example will supplant existing chemotherapeutic regimens as a as a kind of gold standard approach and are there any potential downsides or risks to these therapies that aren't widely discussed or appreciated, you know, all we talk about nowadays, how it's amazing, it's a cure, and these people are on death's door. Is there going to be another shoe dropping 20 years down the line with these patients coming back, or are we introducing risk there? What's your take there? I'm sure there's going to be setbacks. It's just too hard to predict um, everything in clinical science. And I think that the immune system is incredibly powerful and that we're really, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword there. But again, you know, I'm a big believer in basic biology, not just to keep my job, hmm. but uh, if we understand how to, to, um, to really use these tools, they are incredibly powerful. Hmm. Hmm. So we definitely, for sure, have a lot to learn when it comes to CAR-T and optimizing it. And like you said, it's going to take a while, but uh, who knows what's going to happen down the road as well. So shifting gears uh, a little bit, when you're a postdoc, you actually have the good fortune to work with someone else who is a big believer in basic biology, who is Irv Weissman, an absolute legend in the stem cell field. And he was actually also a, a recent guest of ours in uh one of our ISSER episodes not too long ago. So Irv is the director of the Stanford Stem Cell Institute, where I actually got my PhD a couple years ago. And he's always been a big advocate for basic and translational stem cell research. And really the thing I love about Irv is his sustained passion for science, which is really easy to see when you talk to him. And I'm sure you, you might, you'll probably feel the same way. So what was it like during your postdoc with Irv? I've heard those lab retreats to Montana were a ton of fun, and I'm a little jealous I never got to go to one of those. But any stories you'd like to share about the, the stem cell biologist, the myth, the legend, Irv Weissman? Well, what happens in Montana stays in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I agree with you. I mean, more than anything, I think he's an inspiration for the basic science, although he also takes it all the way to, to translation himself. Um, but he, he never, ever um, questioned the validity of, of you know, like the basic science. He never, ever said, that's a boring topic. I don't want to hear about that. I don't care about that molecule or this molecule or that cell type or that model system. I never, ever heard that. 
everything was important and everything was exciting. And I think that's one of the reasons there are so many people from his lab that are out there now doing really good science because it all matters. We never know where the next discovery is going to come from. And that's one of the, the big take homes I got from being in his lab. Yeah, you mentioned it. There's a lot of people everywhere. If you look at NeuroTree, you'll probably see Irv Weissman has, you know, thousands of offspring there. Um, but it it raises the question of the the small bat, small lab, big lab thing. You know, it's always loom large for young postdocs really coming out of their PhD, searching for a lab, looking for a second postdoc, maybe. It's kind of a choice between either big lab, major resources, you know, maybe a big name PI that gets a lot of editor attention from the major journals versus maybe a smaller lab where you get a lot of PI attention, a little bit less visibility. Maybe you you have a harder time with the editors. Uh, You've been really productive in your lab and you seem to have gotten an above average return from each of the trainees that have come through your lab. What's your philosophy and your approach and your take on the the small lab, big lab uh, dichotomy? I think the best thing about science is that there's not one way to do things right. Mm. You can do it your way, as long as you're rigorous and excited and willing to work really hard. That's my take. Mm. And so I do what I like and what I'm passionate about and I think that kind of rubs off on my people. They are, my trainees are just fantastic, um, you know, and, and they are very passionate about what they're doing. I try to give them opportunities. I run a relatively small lab, but they get to interact with other labs. I send them places, they go to conferences and they look for those opportunities themselves. They interact with a lot of other people outside my lab. And so I don't think there's a right or wrong in terms of big lab, small lab. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of different models work. Otherwise, we would all have settled on one or the other at this point, I think. Mm-hmm. So whether you have a small lab or a big lab, you know, one thing that you still have to rely on is funding, right? That's kind of the reality of the business. So you've been supported by by CERM which is the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And it's helped put California on the map when it comes to stem cell research. And I'm also super grateful to CERM because they helped fund my, my own graduate studies. And it's actually a big reason why I decided to return to California to work as a stem cell biologist. And of course, there's a, there's a big vote on the horizon when it comes to funding the ne- next uh, iteration of CERM and you know, continuing California's leadership in stem cell biology. So how has CERM helped progress your lab's work? And if you had to give a pitch for supporting the next generation of CERM, what would it be? I will give a pitch for supporting the next generation of CERM because I am a big proponent. I think it's done uh, amazing things for California, which was already pretty good when it comes to science, basic mm-hmm. science, clinical science, and so forth. But CERM came at an at, at opportune time when the economy was going down and it was really, really important for sustaining research in particular in California. Uh, For me personally, I got one of the new faculty awards in my first year as faculty at UC Santa Cruz. And that was just amazing because it really kickstarted my lab 
and gave me the confidence to hire good people and get started on some projects that I probably wouldn't have taken on otherwise. For my institution, it's all also been incredibly good. We have the Institute for the Biology of Stem Cells now that we wouldn't have had without CIRM. They funded space, they funded new faculty recruitments, they funded core facilities, they funded training programs. And I'm really hopeful that that's gonna uh, be funded by the new version of CIRM that's on the ballot this fall. What do you think that's gonna look like? Because I know we talked to, uh, I think his name was Kevin McCormick, who was part of the leadership there at CIRM. And he talked with us on the show at a point when, well, he was describing how there was a bit of a pivot from the more basic, and then it kind of, I think, dawned on everyone that they needed to have something to show the voters in terms of like therapy and, and clinical translation. And there was a bit of a pivot to try and drive things more toward the clinic. And I, I think uh, the assessment there that it was successful, um, but what's that kind of the, the 3.0 version? If it is on the ballot, what do you think that CERM is going to look like? Is it going to be really focused on getting stuff into the clinic? Because as you kind of alluded to, I think we all agree here on this show that, you know, basic science, even though we all shoot for the clinical endpoint, I think we appreciate the value of the basic. And I think one of the risks when you have an entity like this that's really governed by the populace in many ways, that they're going to kind of drive towards like, hey, what's what's in it for me? Where's the well, show me the the cures? Do you think that that's going to be a major point of emphasis in the 3.0 or the 2.0, whatever you want to call it? Or do you think that will maintain balance and, and dedication to a more basic approach. I have uh, read the ballot that's, uh, that we're gonna be voting on and it does include basic research, it does include training and it does include uh, shared facilities, um, cores and, and so, so items. I don't know what the proportions are going to be, and I don't know at what point that's exactly decided, but I am for it, you know, in, in large part because of the emphasis on basic science and training, because they are essential. Mm -hmm. I guess it depends on how one thinks about this. Is it going to be another 10 years, or should it be 10 plus 10 plus 10 plus 10? Mm. I think the latter is what I'm in favor of. We're not going to solve all problems in the next 10 years, obviously. Um, the clinical emphasis, I think, is important to move quickly towards the clinic on some of these issues, but not too quickly. And I would caution against letting voters really decide on how the science should be done. Mm. I think we need to really be honest about what it takes to develop, um, you know, something in the clinic. Mm -hmm. It should take a long time, like I started out by saying, because we can't start treating kids with something that we don't really know that much about. Mm -hmm. at a large scale. Yeah. I mean, they have 80 years ahead of them. Mm -hmm. We need to be careful and we need to do experiments in model systems. And when we take them to humans, they should be pretty safe or at least safer than any alternative that we can think of. 
Yeah, the the uh, the Chinese twins with the CCR5 Indel. That's a lesson right there. They're going to live their whole life uh, with unknown uh, consequences. But on a less grim note, talking about Sermon California again, I know Sermon's a big draw to researchers. It's done a lot for the scientific community there and, and getting people there. But uh, also, you know, it looks to me, since you got to California back in, uh, in when you joined Urzab, you haven't looked back. It doesn't look like you're leaving the state anytime soon. Meanwhile, Arun just moved back there, shared with me before the show that he's going to the beach this weekend, for goodness sake. Meanwhile, I'm bracing for 20 degrees Fahrenheit here in New York City. So I don't know. I, I, you think that all the, the, the beautiful weather, the chill vibe, the delicious Tex-Mex taco, whatever you want to call it, would be antithetical to this notion of grinding in the lab, yet somehow you two are killing it. I don't get it. How does that work? I bike to work. I, you know, <laughs> and then I bike home, and I bike down the hill from the Santa Cruz campus, and I see all of Monterey Bay in front of me every day, and I'm instantly rejuvenated. And in my 10-minute bike ride home, I have another four hours in me to work after I get home. Mm. So it's the inspiration, you say? It's inspirational. And, you know, I don't have to go anywhere on vacation. I could just walk out the door. (laughs) Well, Dr. Forsberg, I know exactly what you mean. There's actually a guy in my lab who surfs every single day before he comes to lab. So there's definitely something to it, that California vibe. It kind of refreshes the soul a little bit. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and finish the interview on a couple of peripheral questions, a couple of questions that will help our listeners know a little bit more about you. So starting off, what non-science book are you reading or that you've read recently that's absolutely awesome? I'm going to cheat a little bit because it's about scientists, but not by a scientist. Uh, one of the most enjoyable books I've read in the in the past few years is John Steinbeck's The Log of the Sea of Cortez. Hmm. So this is, um, yeah. you know, I love John Steinbeck. It's, it's on the vibe of California. He grew up in Salinas and, of course, got the Nobel Prize, not in science, but in literature. Hmm. But the Log of the Sea of Cortez, he is on a, you know, a mission uh, with a scientist, Ed Ricketts, and sailing down from California down to the Sea of Cortez in Mexico to investigate the marine system there. And the way he describes the science and the scientists is, uh, is endearing to me. He's, it's a very uh, funny book to me. I, I laughed out loud about his descriptions of scientists, and um, I thought it was a really, really enjoyable book. As a scientist in California, I'm going to have to check that one out for sure. So following up on that, what was your greatest or perhaps just a memorable science revelation or surprise? Or in other words, an aha moment. So what was that greatest moment? And was the result what you were expecting or what what you were hoping for? What was that like? So I must say, a scientist should not hope for a certain outcome, right? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Right. Um, so one, one of the most memorable moments that I've had um, is related to one of the self-fate papers that I published in 2011. It was one of the, the first impactful papers from my lab on what we call the flick switch model, where we combined flick to Cree with the 
an MTMG reporter mouse to understand whether FLIC2 positive progenitors, multipotent progenitors, actually um, have potential to give rise to red cells and platelets during steady state in vivo. And so there had been some controversy in the field um, on whether these like two positive cells actually are the normal precursors to red cells and platelets. Um, and most of that had been done by transplantation analysis. And so we didn't know whether this capability to give rise to red cells and platelets was induced by the emergency hematopoiesis uh, upon transplantation into irradiated animals. So we took on this um, lineage tracing model to understand normal hematopoiesis in, in situ. And my graduate student came in with the first um, data where he was like a first year grad student at the time, Scott Boyer, a star in my lab. Um, and uh, I don't think he understood the results at the time, but he showed me the bone marrow analysis of these mice. And he had done three mice in parallel. And I looked at them, and it was just so clear that, you know, it was one of those heart-pounding moments where I was like, oh, my gosh, I know exactly what this means. Hmm. And so that was just really kind of, you know, the heart-pounding, you know, the, wow, I know what this is going to be. And... You know, it was published a couple of years later, and it's it's done quite well. It was written up by faculty of a thousand and, and has been cited uh, highly. And also, um, some uh, it's a model that my lab has built upon since then, and we're still working on this the same model. But um, that was the start. Camila, of course, I know this paper that you're talking about, and it's such it's a great. Uh... It's great for me just to hear how that story came together because, you know, I only see the front facing end. I only see the paper. And what really struck me there is you say in two years later, the paper comes out. And that's so great because I'm just imagining yeah, you have that heart pounding moment. You know exactly what it is. And then you spend the next two years essentially like counting your money, you know, because you know what the how important it is. And you're just kind of doing the bookkeeping. But still, it's two years before you get, you know, other people to recognize how amazing that is. Well, what's that like? What do you spend those two years frustrated? Are you spend those two years just like, you know, like a kid on, on, on Christmas Eve, just waiting for the recognition that's inevitable? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if the, if the recognition is as instant and as uh, overwhelming as it should be. The heart pounding moment, really, you're going to have to keep your heart beating for a long time. Mm. Um, you know, that's one of the hard parts about science is that you have to be so incredibly persistent for so long to get things out there. Um, and, you know, I think that's m my biggest, maybe my only strength as a scientist, that I could just keep going at that. But, you know, it's so good to have, it's so good and so frustrating to have the peer review process, I think. Mm. Because, you know, if nothing else, I knew what that was going to be the time of, but I had to show it. You mm. can't just know it, you have to show it. Mm. And uh, I, I think that is important both important, um, but of course, frustrating too, but, but man, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're in for. So, 
Yep, that's what we're in for. You've been knowing, you've been showing, now you're telling. We appreciate you sharing with us, Camille. This has been a great chat. Thanks again. We'll have you on again soon when you come out with your next little kernel of knowledge and uh, have the chance five years later maybe to show it to us. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, you know, at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We had another bloody episode today. We're on a run. We'll come at you with something probably outside of hematopoiesis in the next couple weeks, but this was a good one. Talk to you guys soon.